Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we're also streaming live at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. It's the first city. It's not the second city. It's the first. So get that right. Now, look here, Radio Islam family. For those of you who are new, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You will find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you use that same username to find us to check out those episodes that you are behind on wherever you get your podcasts. So if that's SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is, you will find us at Radio Islam USA. Last but not least, if you would like to give us a call to make a comment, uh, if you don't feel like typing or posting on our uh, Facebook page or hitting us on Twitter, you can give us a call at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. Okay. I know some folks might be uh, might be ready to, to to have a ready to have a pity party right, at the announcement uh, resignation of Justice uh, uh, Kennedy, but uh, it's not that time, okay? It is not that time at all. This is not a time for mourning, right? This is a time for uh, to regather and see the long game. Uh, this is a time for for action, for, uh, I posted earlier, basically this is time a time for deeper coalition building uh, and really being prepared to be our collective best uh, and understand that they will do their worst, right? But we have to be prepared to do our best. So no moping, no pity parties, no crying. Uh, this too shall pass. Okay, that being said, uh, I am pleased to get into tonight's conversation. Uh, our guest joining us uh, by phone. This phone is a wonderful thing. I mean, all of this technology, this communication keeps us together. Right over long distances, uh, geographic space brings us together. But on the phone tonight, we have Donna Austin. Uh, she is an anthropologist, writer, and activist whose body of work focuses on race, race, ethnicity, gender, religion, media representation, and Islam in America. Uh, she's published a number of short essays, including Mapping the Intersections of Islamophobia and Black Lives Matter, Unearthing Black Muslim Life and Activism in the Policing Crisis, and Recall to Life, on the meaning and power of a die-in. And she's written plenty more. That's just a, just a little bit. Uh, her work has been covered by national news outlets, including NBC News and the Huffington Post. And she was named one of the top 100 Muslim social justice leaders by Empower Change in 2016. We are pleased to welcome Donna Austin to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. How are you? Alhamdulillah. I'm doing, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I pray you are as well. Yeah, I am. Thank okay. you, and it's great to be here. Yes, yes. So, um, you wrote a piece, uh, a reflection. Matter of fact, uh, I don't know how many years you've done the reflection, um, but you wrote a reflection this year, and I saw you. Were, I saw one. I read one from from you in 2017 as well, which was. Um, yeah, this is my third one. It's your third I've, one. I've written for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So the one that you wrote this year, and that's the one that, um, uh, it just it kind of hit me, right? It was on Juice 27. And it, the, the quote from it, uh, in the, the, the title, uh, it says, Islam then is in danger of becoming a repository for all manner of social injustice. Our holy men, for they are often more, for they are, for they are more often than not men. Our sheikhs, our religious leaders will become instruments of hegemony rather than healing, and we will all suffer the consequences. This hit me I mean, just hit me hard. And then when I, I read the whole piece, I was hit again. And I said, yeah, we, we, we have to talk about this and other things. Um, but this idea of hegemony and its presence within the religious um, order or religious life is what we want to kind of start off with. Um, what has been, first of all, I know, what has been your, the response that you have gotten or have you gotten a particular response to this piece? 
Um, to this particular piece, um, I mean, there's been some, you know, there's been some chat. I mean, the response wasn't like, you know, there wasn't a, an outpouring of response or a controversy because these are, I think some of these are things that I've said publicly before. So I don't know um, if this particular uh, piece was a bit, was a, much of a surprise to people who have been familiar with my work. I mean, these are issues that concern me and that I talk about a lot publicly. Right. And kind of the impetus for, for that particular piece for me is, is, you know, really, I, I mean, I guess some of it is personal, right? You know, where um, I'm a convert to Islam, I converted to Islam 28 years ago, more mm-hmm. or less, alhamdulillah. And one of the things that was really attractive to me about the way Islam was articulated by the people who introduced me to Islam was that, you know, you know, there was, as, a, as, a, as an integral part of the spiritual practice, right, that there was this, this, uh, this special attention that was being paid to social justice, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, um, and that this is a moral responsibility of a person who aims to serve God, right? Ridding the world of racism, white supremacy, um, you know, sexism, injust- economic injustice, all of these types of things are, in fact... Um, I think they are moral issues, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the things that attracted me to Islam in the first place um, all those years ago. And it is in recent years, um, I've noticed uh, a trend on the part of, and actually maybe not, it's probably not even fair, not just recent years, but I think in many, you know, over the course of my time as a Muslim, I mean, I've served the, you know, tried to serve the community in various capacities, um, including um, a number of years as the administrator, one of the administrators of a mosque. You know, I've, I've worked with a lot of Muslim, Muslim serving organizations. And, you know, um, I mean, have encountered in general a lot of, uh, rhetoric and teachings about kind of what Islam says, right, mm-hmm. um, and what Muslims are supposed to do, um, that I find to be honestly filtered through the lens of people living within the context of problematic ideologies all around them, meaning what, right? If you have a social, uh, if you have a social background that includes exposure, um, or acculturation into racism as a way of life, mm. right? Um, when you read the scripture, you are going to read the scripture through that filter, right? right? right. Um, if you are a person who has grown up believing that men are inherently superior to women, and this is a part of your social upbringing, this is a part of your cultural framework, mm. um, you are going to read the scripture through that filter, and so what, quote-unquote, Islam says um, becomes, you know, um, laden with all of this, you know, this negative social baggage, right? It, and it reinforces every I, ill and, I, and, I, and it's become, and I'm sorry, to, to just to close this point mm-hmm. out really sure, quickly, sure. it's become more urgent, I think, to me because of the, polit- in, within the last couple of years, because of the political, the political climate that we're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we've expressed, many of our religious leaders have expressed a reluctance to weigh in on, um, you know, pressing, you know, social justice issues of the day, you know, police brutality, um, you know, kind of conservative politics that are, you know, um, you know, reproductive rights, mm-hmm. environmental justice, like you name it. Like we have been slow in many cases, I think, to to weigh in on these issues, and many of our leaders have been, I. I I expressing views on these issues that I find morally reprehensible. Did you think that those positions are taken because they are, they are, I guess, an extension of already dysfunctional uh, perceptions? Um, uh, you mentioned uh, if you are acculturated into Islam um, in a way that reinforces uh, racism or sexism, uh, that it could also be that you, your silence is also kind of, it, it's kind of a reflection of of your your position already. No, absolutely. I believe that I believe that silence is, um, you know, particularly in times of 
of of of moral conflict and upright, you know, and, and uh, you know, issues where there are circumstances where there is a necessity to take a moral stand. Silence is a decision. Mm-hmm. It is a political position. It is, you know, if you, I mean, this is wisdom that we've gleaned from Dr. King and others, right? You know, I mean, there's, there's nothing, there's no such thing as neutrality, right? right. When families are being ripped apart at the border, for example, mm. there's, there's, you know, when innocent civilians are shot in the street, and you don't say anything, that is a that is a position that you're taking, right? And so there's no such thing as, well, if I don't say anything, I'm, you know, I'm neutral. Like, you're not neutral because, right, mm-hmm. um, and this is Quranic, and as far as I understand it, right, that, mm-hmm. you know, if um, we are to enjoy the right and forbid the wrong, um, right. you know, the person who saves a life, um, it, or a, a single life, it, it is as if they've saved the life of the entire humanity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in our, our prophetic teachings that tell us that, you know, a person who sees a wrong should change it with their hands, and if she cannot uh, do that, she, you know, she should change it with her tongue, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, we have all of these texts that we recite, you know, kind of, I don't know, maybe absentmindedly uh, to that that compel us and command us to actually, that we have to actually do something when people are being harmed. Mm-hmm. And so it's puzzling to me when that doesn't happen, when we, we feel like there's, you know, like there's, there are, there's a question about whether or not we should take a stand and be, um, be firm about um, the position that we're taking when people are being actively harmed. Right. You know, one of the things that we attempt to do on this program is to is to erase situational outrage, um, mm. and, and and that is really from a from a believer standpoint, not just from a Muslim standpoint, but from a believer standpoint, uh, realizing that uh, there is a connection that that exists between all uh, instances of oppression, and, and and when that connection, when that uh, oppression is is realized then the person who sees it has a responsibility to respond. So Absolutely. that being said, there is a, as a matter of fact, I, I think I read this in the 2017 reflection you did, and there was, there was kind of a comparison uh, between, uh, it was talking about morality and the, the social life or morality and society and the connection between these two, two things. And it made me think about water uh, as a kind of a, a metaphor for, morality and how uh, water finds its level um, mm. that 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 being said how difficult is it or what are the the the, the, the mechanisms that you would um, point to or, 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 or would come to mind when it comes to raising that level of morality which in turn you know it filters over uh, it spills over into the societal response to injustice I think for me, something that I've been contemplating a lot lately and something that I was trying to get at in that last reflection that you that you referenced Mm -hmm. um, was, I think, broadening what our definition of morality is, is the best place to start. Mm, Okay. Um, And I think because I think what morality, when we say that word, right, most often um, what many of us, what immediately comes to mind for a lot of us, right, is you know, kind of the personal, I mean, and I, like there I say it, most of the time it has to do with, with sexual behavior, right? right? Um, it, it, you're a moral person if you, you know, you know, whatever, if you're, 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 your sexual practices fall within a particular prescribed set of limits, mm-hmm. right? Um, if somebody, and this is how a lot of times, and in and Muslim communities, and, and, and now it's not limited to Muslim communities, because I do see this, I think, I see this also in other types of religious communities and certain conservative Christian communities. I definitely see, I think it's honestly, it's definitely a characteristic of, you know, the the expressions of religious politics known as, you know, kind of the relig- like white religious right. Right. This is a hallmark of, of it's actually a hallmark of, of that movement, right, where there's this kind of laser-like focus on regulating, you know, access to reproductive, you know, care, for yeah. example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that, you know, like, you know, a, a position that is called pro-life in our, you know, popular political discourse is really narrowly defined 
to mean that you are a person who opposes access to abortion. Pro-life does not extend, for example, to the abolition of the death penalty. Pro-life typically. Yeah. The pro, pro-life does not typically mean that um, you will support policies. I mean, if we're talking about how this manifests in American and like U.S. politics, mm-hmm. somebody, you know, politicians who are frequently considered pro-life, you know, a lot of times will vote against um, or family values politicians will vote against policies that, for example, that extend um, the availability of food stamps for people. Like people, if you're pro-life, then how are you going to how are you going to vote to take away food access to people, mm-hmm. or access to health care for people, or access to you know, or um, you know, or or how or how do you not then have how are you not morally outraged when people are shot dead in the street by police officers? Because that seems to be a contravention of what we would call quote unquote pro-life. Right. And so I think for, for me, I, I want for my community to have a more expansive definition of what morality means, because it's, I mean, I find it to be a moral outrage that people are starving next to me in the richest country in the world. Right. I find it a moral outrage that people don't have access to health care in the, you know, in the, I mean, we are like, we brag about like how the U.S. has the best health care system in the world. I mean, I think in some ways, you know, a lot of the innovation and whatever does come from the U.S., but, it, but, you know, many citizens can't afford to use it. And what does that, so what does that say about us morally? Um, you know, where people can't afford the basics, where they can't afford shelter, where they don't have access to clean drinking water. I mean, Flint still doesn't have clean drinking water. Yeah. And, and that is a moral, mm-hmm. that, is, that is a moral failing on the part. So I think for me, expanding the definition of, of what is moral and immoral um, is critical here because it's not just about whether or not, you know, person X is sleeping with person Y that I approve of. Right. That's not that's not I mean, and, and when we and when we do that, when we focus on that narrow different definition of morality, a lot of times what ends up happening is that even those 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 quote unquote family values that we claim to believe in um, end up being violated in the worst possible way. And we see this, for example, when we look at how the party of family values is currently you know, just, I mean, this is where the, you know, the Muslim ban that separates actual families is coming from. Right? This is the where, mm-hmm. um, these are, this is the party that is endorsing this border policy is coming from where people, where children are being, you know, placed in this, in detention centers away from their families. So how are we family values if that's the, that's the policy outcome, you know? So I think it, it, it actually is a way when we when we when we net, when we define morality so narrowly, we actually end up betraying the very principles that we claim to believe in in the first place. You know, even in terms of just you know um, you know family or you know whatever that definition of, of family is supposed to be or preserving family is supposed to be, or, and we end up betraying that in the most violent and abhorrent ways. Yeah, or or making the assumption when we use the word morality that we are um, that we are all covered. Uh, that everyone's interest is covered under this idea of, of morality. When, mm-hmm. when, yep. when in actuality, we were, we're talking about a very uh, select few with a very uh, specific agenda. Uh, Absolutely. And when we, we embrace these terms to our own, uh, to our own detriment without, without uh, being clear, without expanding uh, what these words mean. Um, and this, this also leads me to who is making, uh, who, who have historically made the decisions. If we're speaking about, uh, if we just stay within the United States um, uh, context, as that, that is a frame of reference, then we know we go back to uh, white male landowners as being those who had the, um, who had the, the right to, to, to make, rep, uh, make decisions to be represented uh, and their decisions affected everyone else. Um, fast forward to today, uh, going through all these uh, th- different um, um, uh, resistance efforts uh, and movements, uh, and now we have a point where uh, women, um, and, and it's not just not just now; it's an extension of the the women's um, uh, the, the the movement of uh, women's liberation movement, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, feminism uh, coming to the forefront. Um, and the, the expansion of, of, of studies in academia. Uh, and academia, and and now we find ourselves now. There's a, a particular hashtag which 
I think is really important, which is um, it's it's sight black women. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a this is particularly relevant on, on a few different fronts. This has always been a society where once power was established, power was look was was uh, was sought, and it was that there was a there was an effort to maintain power, and as as power has has shifted or it appears to shift, there there is resistance against that. So, I mentioned that that hashtag and, and today's movement as well uh, for for this reason to get your thoughts on is is there any group that is looking for power and not just for power's sake because the whole thing about um you know I'll stop there cuz I don't want to I don't want to layer the question too much but do you see do you see any uh group do you see women looking for uh not just for recognition right because rec with recognition comes voice right i mean the worst thing you can do is to to erase somebody or ignore somebody act as if they don't exist and then make decisions for them um but with this attainment of power the attainment of voice is it for the sake of of balance or of being better stewards or do you think it is it is it is something else well um a couple of things. One, I just want to, I just want to I'm say I'm happy to hear you citing um, or making reference to the fight black women hashtag. This is actually a brainchild of a friend of mine and a colleague, uh, one of my anthropologist colleagues who is a brilliant, Kristen uh, uh, Smith, who's a, a brilliant, uh, brilliant anthropologist and scholar. And so her work is, um, is very impactful. So I'm, I'm just, just, that's just a random <laughs> shout out. Um <laughs> But um, I think to answer your, your question more broadly, it's basically we're all human beings, okay? So right. I don't believe that anyone is or any movement created by human beings, um, and that includes, um, by the way, what we call Islam, right? Because, of course, I, I mean, there's a, there's a, as, a, as a believing Muslim, I believe that Allah is above time and space. And Allah is not entangled in kind of earthly, you know, you know, burdened by right to earthly baggage and earth and human conflicts, right? Allah is above all of that, but we are not. Right. And so the divine message perhaps is free of that, but when it comes into our hands, it is always going to be filtered through whatever kind of hangups that we have as human beings. And so I don't believe that it is possible for anybody to be immune ever um, to um, misusing power, even if they started out in a struggle that was righteous or that had good intentions, right? You know, we are all susceptible to being, you know, overtaken by our ego or kind of like, you know, going wayward or, you know, just being influenced by, by just normal human inclinations to greed and, you know, whatever. Like, so, you know, we're always susceptible to this. So I think that's something that um, no movement can claim immunity from, right? right? Um, but what I think we can do um, and should do and must do um, is to be aware of that, aware of that, that danger, and therefore always be on the lookout for it. So that whatever efforts that we're engaged in, um, that we, we, you know, are constantly checking, you know, what's creeped in and trying to, you know, maintain focus on the goal, which is equity, justice, um, you know, parity, removal of harm, like all of those things that we, um, people who are, you know, involved in social justice work, you know, many times got, this is why we got into it in the first place, right? Because right. we were interested in quote unquote, seeing a better world to use a completely cliche type of phrase, right? <laughs> um, but along the way, you know, distractions and diversions are possible. So we, you know, we do our best, right, as human beings to, to be vigilant about that. But if we're not vigilant, that means that we, you know, we're susceptible to being diverted. And that's, so, so we can find that anywhere. So we can find that, for example, in houses of worship. Mm -hmm. You know, you can find that, you know, the person who is supposed to, you know, whose job it is to kind of like provide a sense of guidance and moral clarity for the community, you know, got caught up in some stuff that, you know, that was a bit problematic and, and is now giving advice from a place that isn't ideal, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I think that 
the basic premise for me is that this is always possible. So this is something that we always have to watch out for in ourselves and in our movements and in our spaces that we create and do our best to manage it. Mm. You know, there, um, mm-hmm. Go ahead. yeah. So that's, the, I mean, that's the short answer, the short, yeah. shorter answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to, to my very long uh, question. <laughs> so, uh, um, there is so uh, speaking of the houses of worship, uh, and I know this is not something that is that is just uh, that is just focused or just present within uh, Islam, uh, and it's many different um, uh, within its uh, within its vast composition, right? Because we know Islam, uh, Muslims were not a monolith, and I also have to just give a quick since you gave a shout out, I'm gonna give a shout out to one of my former uh, professors. Uh, when people say Islam says, he says, no, Islam doesn't talk. Islam, Muslims, Muslims it, it, speak. Precisely, okay. precisely. That, who's your professor? Because that, that, that's, that's, that's important insight right that there. That was uh, uh, Dr. Timothy D, uh, Giannotti. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I say this, I say this all the time. Like, you know, I mean, in my, and I just, just quickly, like in my own work, like I, like I, I use language very specifically, like when I'm writing, like Muslims, these Muslims do X, right, as opposed to Islam says or does. Right. Right. You know, and that's very contextualized, you know, and as an anthropologist, I appreciate that because, I mean, that's part of what we do is kind of, you know, when we're doing our work right is to kind of take these mega abstractions and actually root them in people's lives somewhere because that's, that's where so that's where the making of, of something called, quote, unquote, Islam takes place is mm. with actual people and in specific context. So, you know, what? Yeah. we're going to take a short break when we come back. I want I'm saying it because I don't want to forget it because I'm not I don't have anything written down. Um, but I want <laughs> to uh, get into this idea of how uh, African-American Muslims, black Muslims, how the that this tension this uh, resistance to white supremacy uh, and oppression, how it has become a part, it has become a part of the manifestation of how, how Islam is practiced in this particular community or how, okay. it is, how it is seen. And I want to get into a bit of that. Here, here's some of, your, uh, some of your, your thoughts on this, this being an area of your, your expertise. So uh, when we come back, we will get into that. Um, but right now, Radio Islam family, we're going to take a short break. This is WCEV 1450 AM Radio Slime. We'll be back in just a moment. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So, um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah, and I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Hey, America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. We got extra food and we've got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. 
The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are still broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at WCEV1450.com. Remember, folks, you can keep up with us on social media and find us wherever you get your podcast at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You'll find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, all that good stuff. And uh, we're going to get back into our conversation. So we have joining us tonight Donna Austin. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, her work has been covered by national news outlets, uh, including uh, NBC, Huffington Post. Uh, she's a writer, activist, anthropologist, uh, not in that order. I mixed the order up. It's okay, but she has all of those things and more. Um, and before we went to break, I, want, I wanted to make sure that I put it out there uh, because I think this is very, uh, it's a very important point to talk about because the Radio Islam family is multi-ethnic. Uh, matter of fact, some Muslim and some aren't. Uh, but it's important when we use terms, when people hear terms like African-American Muslims or black, is black Muslims or uh, anything of the sort, that they understand that there is a, there's, there's a rationale, there's a reality behind that. So if you would, Donna, um, kind of talk a bit about how uh, kind of, we sort of jumped into it a little bit earlier, uh, how morality is, is impacted by the social um, mm-hmm. and some of the things that make the practice of Islam among African Americans uh, writ large, not to, not to be, to, to paint us as a monolith, you know, either, but some of the things that are, that you would find consistent that, that show this, this difference. Uh, yeah, I mean, sure. So generally speaking, um, the collection of expressions of of, 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 Muslim, of Islamic practice that um, are found among African-Americans is pretty diverse, as you alluded to, right? So um, so I'm going to make a lot of broad generalizations, but try to figure out how to, how to connect it in people's minds. So we have, you know, I mean, African-American Sunni Muslims, you have African-American uh, Shia Muslims, um, of course, you know, groups like the Nation of Islam, which is a tradition that Malcolm X emerges out of, this is what, you know, many people are familiar with when, or most familiar with when they're thinking about, you know, African Americans and Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other, you know, other expressions of, of Islamic practice, um, Ahmadiyya, you know, whatever. So there are all types of orientations to Islam that, that can be, you know, um, Islamic practice and theology that can be found under the general descriptor of African-American Islam. Historically, however, um, even amongst most of these different groupings, um, one of the things that is remarkably consistent is that in some way or another, um, most of these groups have found it necessary to address the issue of of anti-black racism, discrimination, white supremacy, in some way. They may have had different strategies about how to engage with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some, you know, taking a more, you know, um, you know, a more dramatic, you know, or quote-unquote dramatic departure from, you know, um, proximity to whiteness or whatever you know like yeah. you know how how or do we integrate with white people or not for example is like a classic question um expressed in for example the nation of islam's political spiritual orientation right and they as a matter of how they 
and you know conceived Islam to be, and in the past and the present has been, you know, this you know really, um, uh, how do I say it? You, you know, a really strong position on well, you know, how black liberation is supposed to proceed with relationship to white America, right? There's a very um, you know, explicit and articulate tradition, you know, that they've, you know, kind of uh, articulated as a part of their Islamic practice. So, right. but other groups have taken different approaches, right? So, um, but everybody needed to address it, right? Because, again, in this particular context, in this particular social context, that is a fact of life. That is an immovable fact of life. And if you live in the U.S. and you are a black person, racism has impacted your life in some way. And so, it, so the so this has become a central feature of African American Islamic uh, spiritual expression mm. um, over the years, and that's developed, of course, over the decades, and it's changed and it's mutated, and you know it's developed in different ways. Um, for me, excuse me, as, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a convert. I come into, you know, I be, I'm introduced to Islam in the late, late 80s. You know, um, this is this particular characteristic of black Islam and the black Muslims that I came into contact with. This was actually part of the attraction for me was because um, within the context of kind of figuring out, you know, how I can see God and what God wanted me to do in this world, it helps me to understand my place and my social location as a black woman, mm. um, specifically, right? Not just as an abstract human being like that could stand in for, you know, that, that typically within the context of the U.S. typically means a white man, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? This is, this is the quintessential human being, right? Um, but, yeah. but actually spoke to me directly as a black woman and told me how I'm supposed to understand my place in the world and what I'm supposed to do with that place in the world as a black woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was couched in a message from God to me. And so that mattered. And so for me, that was very appealing and for a lot of people who have converted to Islam, um, within the context of the African American tradition, I think that's been a, a historically been a part of the appeal. Um, you know, and I've, I've talked to people, not just myself, but, you know, many people who have in diverse, you know, in some of these diverse movements, you know, a lot of what they were seeking was in part an answer to, you know, that particular question of how to understand their place in the world as a black person with persistent anti-black racism and violence as a part of, you know, how they experience life. Mm. Now, kind of stretch this out, stretch this I, this realization out, this this attraction, uh, and this common thread that runs through each expression of Islam throughout the African American um, uh, diaspora community, uh, and then connect that to the uh, political climate that we find ourselves in today. Uh, I shouldn't say political climate, the social climate where there are, there are issues that are that are plaguing not specifically the black Muslim community or the African-American Muslim community, but the African-American community, period, of which the black Muslim, uh, you know, uh, emanate from. So these are issues that are important to this particular part of the Muslim community in the United States. Uh, and so that being said, to go back to uh, this idea that when you see oppression, you see something that is, you know, uh, acts of injustice, that there's a requirement, there's an expected uh, response from from Muslims uh, in uh, in particular, but from believers and just conscious people uh, in general. When that doesn't happen, um, when that doesn't happen, what are the do you do you think that and I don't want to paint with too broad of a, uh, uh, strokes in this because I know that there are Muslims of many different that are I'll just say non-black that are front and front and center when it comes to trying to 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 address these issues, but there's a perception that it's it's not enough. So what 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 do you think? What is the disconnect uh, between between those things and how does and does it further entrench? Um, this idea that there's a separate reality for 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 black Muslims that kind of acts as a as as a barrier between this ideal ummah. So, 
So, so you're asking a whole bunch of questions in one. Let me just get to the, the meat of it as you're I'm asking terrible. about I'm how. <laughs> I'm just want, just want to make sure I answer you. So that you're asking about kind of the disconnect between um, black Muslims or African, African-American black, which are, of course, not quite synonymous, right? Because you right. have within black, you have Caribbean and continental African and, uh, you know, Afro-Latino, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and then, like, you know, African-American meaning specifically, you know, U.S. descendants of people whose, whose, people, whose ancestors were enslaved within, you know, what is now the continental U.S. It takes um, an anthropologist to break that down like that. Right. Thank they, you. You know, they overlap <laughs> in intersect, but they're not necessarily the same thing right. <laughs> all the time. Right. Yes. So, um, so, but... We're, you know, but speaking specifically about um, about African American Muslims and or you know, I mean, I think so. I think I know. I understand what your question is. Basically, racism is not necessarily limited to kind of like you know African Americans and white Americans, right? Right. There's racism. Racism and anti-blackness is global. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you will find within Muslim communities, um, interracial, interethnic, um, international, transnational Muslim communities, you will sometimes find that various um, segments of the, of the Umar, the community of, of believers, of, 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 uh, that's the Arabic word, right, for, you know, community of believers that, I mean, even though we share a common faith, you know, our social locations don't always permit us to see eye to eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and racism is a global phenomenon. I mean, many of the of the, the lands that we call, quote unquote, the Muslim world um, have been colonized. So they are impacted, of course, by the logic of white supremacy as well mm-hmm. as post-colonial lands. Many of those people come to the U.S. and their children and their children are born here. And they're also exposed to kind of the, the particularly uh, U.S.-based American brand of, um, of, of racial uh, categorization. Um and so this, again, as we were talking about earlier, this shows up in our houses of worship, mm-hmm. you know. So we may pray next to each other if I'm an African-American Muslim and you are a Muslim from, you know, an Egyptian background or a Pakistani background or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that doesn't prevent either of us from having um, prejudiced ideas about who the other are, what they represent, um, and, you know, and and re-inscribing those, you know, those racial logics upon each other, right? right? Um, So that happens quite a bit, um, and it's not uncommon at all. Um, It certainly shows up in contemporary political discourse, and there are so many examples of this. Um, You know, anything from, you know, the in the 2000s, President, U.S. presidential elections, when you had a large segment of the of the U.S. Muslim community, primarily South Asians and other like non-black Muslims, primarily mm-hmm. saying, "Hey, we're going to throw our weight behind this candidate as as a Muslim community," and that candidate was George Bush, George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And I know at the time, a lot of African American Muslims I know were like, "Like what?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because we have a very different or we have a different relationship to the Republican party and the Reagan Bush, you know, machine. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of African Americans to kind of, you know, think about, you know, as a, you know, as a black person and as a Muslim that I'm going to endorse George W. Bush as a political candidate made no sense. So, um, you know, so that's one example, but then, you know, but it shows up in other, you know, and more recent years, it shows up in, you know, a sometimes disconnect between, a, you know, when we're kind of discussing the, you know, the phenomenon of, of anti-black uh, state violence, right? Yeah. Um, when we're talking about police brutality, when we're talking about, you know, people getting shot in the streets because of their race, right? You know, many times there's disconnect because experientially people who aren't black Muslims and because many of those folks also have inherited anti-blackness. Um, or have picked it up and allowed it to order their lives, right, um, mm-hmm. for whatever reasons. Um, sometimes those reasons are because it permits them um, 
at least the illusion of social mobility, you know, because this is how, because the American race, you know, the American social order is, you know, based upon a, a racial binary, white and black, and white being at the top, white being at the bottom, the further you are away from black, the better you are socially and economically, typically. Mm-hmm. So a lot of for a lot of people coming to the U.S., this has become a strategy, right? We distance ourselves from blackness in order to become successful because that's what a lot of immigrants are seeking when they come here. Um, you know, so so this is all this is all a part of the reality within the notion of Uma or community, right? These are things that are all operating. So we can talk about religiously how we're one community, but again, our social locations. Um, and, you know, compel us to um, to build and enact community um, in ways that are consistent with our social reality. And mm. so this is what happens. You know, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think I, I think I got at what I what I think you were asking. Well, you know, because the question because my statement, my statement question was so was so long. Uh, <laughs> no, I think that was a that was a wonderful answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Uh, l- let me ask this, because uh, we're, we're getting down. It's, it's, it goes by too fast, way too fast. Um, but but I want to ask this. And there was a term uh, a, a friend used, uh, and I'm going to shout her out. This is shout-out night. Uh, Layla Abdullah-Poulos, who is actually hitting us on Twitter right now with the speed of a court reporter, of a, sten- a stenographer. <laughs> um, uh, she used a, a, a term complementary binary in a conversation uh, we had. And I said, oh, that is a wonderful, that is a wonderful uh, expression just in terms of male-female relationships and uh, not, not oppositional. So with this idea in mind, this complementary binary, how do you see, uh, especially as it relates to our houses of worship, uh, our masajid, uh, and even beyond, uh, do you see the voice of black Muslim women who uh, there feels, at least to me, uh, to be just uh, a, a surge Invisibility, a surge in, uh, in, in in the the thoughts that are being uh, promoted, and uh, in, in, in scholarship and activism. How what is the impact of of this half of that? Um, uh, what is the impact of that complementary binary, and correcting some of the uh, some of the, the the missteps or ills or lack of representation within uh, these houses of worship and beyond. As far as gender relations are concerned, I'm going to try to answer this as quickly as possible, but I think what needs to happen is just as we are experiencing in many ways, um, both within our Muslim communities, but also within the broader society that we are embedded within, is that that there is a need to shake up the status quo. Mm -hmm. And the status quo for so long in the broader society, but also in our Muslim communities replicated on a smaller scale, has been a situation where women are present and laboring and supporting the community, um, but but not being, you know, honored and reciprocated and uh, recipro- you know, the, the, the privileges of, of the community are not being reciprocated to women, and women are being marginalized and pushed out and, um, and in many cases, you know, just, just not treated very well. Um, again, based on somebody's idea that this is the divine order, that, that, that God or Allah has divinely sanctioned that, um, that men are in charge and women are just there for, you know, decoration. Um, and so we need, we need to shake that up a little bit. And what that's going to mean and what that, what that has sometimes resulted in is, is this conflict or, or seeming conflict between, um, you know, you know, quote unquote, the two halves of the community. But I think what has to happen is that, I mean, to be completely blunt, is that, um, you know, the Muslim men need to understand that because they are male in a society that favors maleness, mm-hmm. um, regardless of whether, you know, they're, they may be marginalized in other ways by virtue of race or religious identity, that they do, in fact, enjoy privilege. And if we are serious about the business and the work of creating equitable communities, then that means that that male privilege has to be examined. And men have to be willing to admit that, one, admit that they possess it, and two, um, do the requisite self-examination and and work to rid themselves of believing that they're entitled to it and work do the work to rid their communities of, of you know, of, of 
of the ways that it is operating within those communities. What does that mean? Um, yeah, so so that means that, you know, um, these conversations that are happening more publicly, because in my experience, these conversations about equity or lack thereof have been happening amongst Muslim women for a very long time. There's a lot of frustration behind closed doors, but what we've seen um, in the broader society and within Muslim communities is that, you know, many of us are just tired, you know, and the political times are demanding that we not let things just sit there and fester the way that they have been sitting and festering for so long. And it is, again, to kind of go back to something we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. when there is a situation of, you know, where there is a fork in the road, a moral fork in the road, where we either we go left or we go right, right? There's, you know, staying neutral or silent is not an option. These issues have to be addressed if we are to um, heal, grow, and move forward as a community. We can't talk about unity when people are being pushed out. Right. And, and folks are just watching. Yeah. Right, absolutely. right. You absolutely. know, so it's, I mean, it's so we have to, as, as a community, we have to take a stand. Um, and that, you know, and, but, I, but silence in the name of quote-unquote community unity is not really an option because a lot of times that's what when we talk about you know unity this is what it means well you know if you're if you have a grievance as a marginalized person whether that be by race or gender economics or whatever the case may be mm -hmm. that you just kind of grin and bear it so that those of us who who enjoy positions of privilege um don't have to be bothered or confronted or made uncomfortable by the fact that we are a party to an oppressive social order yeah basically uh, your conscience becomes hostage to the majority absolutely um, yeah. and that's unacceptable yes absolutely thank you um donna it has been a pleasure talking to you um i thank you for taking the time uh to share your insights before, thank you for inviting me here and it's been my pleasure as well before you go Please tell the Radio Sound family how they can uh, keep up with you on uh, social media. They can keep up with me. At my website um, is my name, DonnaAustin.com. Um, it's currently being revamped, so, um, you know, just a little bit of patience while I transition over to a new site. Um, but also you can find me on Facebook. Um, I have a public Facebook page. Um, if you, you know, type in my name, Donna Austin. And my last name is spelled A-U-S-T-O-N, so that's important. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that's how you will find me on Facebook, um, I, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, my handle is at tiny Muslima. So um, that you can find me there as well. Um, and, you know, my work and things that I write and, you know, um, talks that I give and interviews of that sort are all there if you're interested. OK, thank you very much. I'm about to do the auctioneer closeout. Um, Radio Islam family, uh, we thank you for joining us. Our engineers, we thank them over at WCEV. Leonard, thank you very much. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive Ibrahim Bake. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. The views expressed by the host and their guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. All right, family, we'll see you tomorrow. We're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. <laughs>